Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here with Professor Akhil Amar, who's back in his professorial role now that the academic year is starting. Good morning, Akhil. Good morning. Yes, it used to be that the three best things about my job were called June, July, and August. Um, now they're the two and a half best things. <laughs> well, I think COVID scheduling screws everything up also. So, all right. Well, we, we've been talking about the Supreme Court in many of our recent episodes, uh, going through the justices uh, in a unique way to see how one can examine their current jurisprudence through the lens of their lives and, and legal careers, not in a gossipy way, but in, in an interesting way. Um, and then we had, of course, Neil Katyal, who gave us a perspective on arguing before the court. What we haven't done as much of is look at the last term, or the upcoming term specifically, and, uh, and cases uh, that, that came up or will come up. Um, and uh, we were thinking about, you know, how, how we might do that in terms of this podcast. And um, actually, we came up with another detour. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, is an important credential of Professor Marr is the fact that he's been cited by the Supreme Court more than any active scholar. Um, we talk about that a lot, and that's not something that I think uh, the, the general audience goes and looks up when they think about a particular scholar. How many times did the Supreme Court cite him? I mean, um, other scholars uh, may do so, um, but uh, one of the things I think we'd like to talk about is why that might matter. You know, citations are a very interesting topic and actually can go, can branch out in a variety of directions. So uh, in the last term, for example, uh, you were cited uh, by Justice Thomas, is that correct? Indeed, and um, Andy, just to anticipate the, maybe the broader arc of our conversation, um, I'd like to connect citations to more general issues of, of rankings, um, of um, schools, of scholars, of scholarship. Um, and uh, uh, so um, if you go on my um, Yale, my, my, my three main internet portals, if you just want to get some sense of who I am, might be the akilamar.com podcast, uh, uh, the website that Andy, you created, and that is one of several ways of um, accessing this podcast. So akilamar.com has some information about me. You you, you put it all together. I, I don't think I've, I've done very much except to, to thank you. And, 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 to and, do, and to author all the material. <laughs> Yeah, but Minor you know, put it all there so that people can access it, and you've organized it, and you know, been my my my, my main uh, a, a promoter. So thank you for that. So there's a kilomar.com that you created, um, and and that's where um, the uh, podcast is um, housed. Um, and then there's just my, the gen, my general Wikipedia page, and I actually don't mess with that, but I I think I asked you to correct or update, you know, uh, one or two. Um, uh, things uh, uh, of late. Um, and then there's my uh, Yale University website. Uh, the, the, the main one is actually at the Yale Law School. I have a smaller one in the Yale Political Science Department where I have a courtesy appointment. Um, and, um, and the Yale Law School website is the one that I actually um, had the most involvement with. I basically um, uh, uh, wrote the, the 
copy for that. So if you just, I'm just Googling my own name right now, and actually the first hit is Akil Riedemar Yale Law School. Um, and here's actually um, of what, um, that my, just the opening uh, sentences of, of, of my bio. Um, Akil Riedemar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, where he teaches constitutional law in both Yale College and Yale Law School. His work has won awards from both the American Bar Association and the Federal Society. So I'm signaling, you know, I'm, I, I'm across the spectrum. And he has been cited by Supreme Court justices across the spectrum in more than 40 cases. So those are my, you know, first two sentences of, of self-description um, is I'm telling people, oh, take me seriously. Because um, then in the, the longer version of the bio, that was just the, the um, synopsis. Um, I say um, he's been cited by Supreme Court justices, um, he being I, I've been cited by Supreme Court justices across the spectrum. So again, I'm trying to signal that it's not ideological. In more than 40 cases, Dash tops in his generation. Um, and so um, just we're already now seeing an interesting thing about citation studies. Oh, depends on what question you ask the metric. Well, why Supreme Court cases versus cases more generally, you know, all federal courts or all federal and state courts. And what do you mean tops in his generation? What do you mean active scholars? You see, because I've, I've structured, um, you know, uh, uh, that, that statistic in a certain way, and it needs to be defended. Um, so active, uh, and then I said, oh, across the spectrum, that's an interesting point. So it, that's about the, that's just the total number of citations, but the distribution of them. So we'll talk about that one case in particular last term that you mentioned. And you, mm -hmm. I think you already said, you just slipped in, that it was a citation uh, from Justice Thomas. Well, I think that's interesting because um, I suspect Justice Thomas in 2016 and maybe even 2020 voted for someone different from president than I did. You know, I was fiercely opposed to Trump both times. So were you. I don't think that's true of um, Clarence Thomas or his uh, spouse, Jenny Thomas. Um, so, yet he's the one who sided me. You know, he's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. He's generally perceived as conservative. I see myself um, as left of center, um, a kind of Joe Biden, uh, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, a mainstream Democrat. I'm not from the AOC, Bernie Sanders socialist wing, um, but from the centrist wing of the party. Um, so, so isn't it interesting, even in the one case where I cited um, last year, um, pushing me, I think, to 41 or something like that overall lifetime, that it came from a conservative justice. Some of my citations have come from justices um, uh, who were appointed by, by, by Democrats. So that's one thing already, the distribution of citations. But truthfully, in a somewhat self-serving way, I structured the, uh, um, the metric um, in a way that made me look a little bit better. I said tops among active scholars, tops in his generation. There are two living people who are cited more than I am. Um, one is, um, I think in his 90s, um, he, his name is Wayne Lafave. He's an emeritus, therefore not active, not in my generation. Um, I'm still 62, although about to turn 63. And I would say someone who's in his 90s isn't really my generation. Wayne Lafave is um, an emeritus professor at the University of Illinois, which is not one of the uh, most highly ranked law schools, although it has a great uh, law dean named Vic Amar, um, my kid brother and sometime co-author. Um, why Wayne Lefebvre? Why is he cited so much? Because he wrote a treatise 
on the Fourth Amendment. It's a multi-volume treatise, and courts pay a lot, the Supreme Court pays a lot of attention to the Fourth Amendment. Why? Because of the exclusionary rule, which gives every criminal defense attorney an incentive to try to litigate search and seizure issues, because that may be a way of getting his client who's guilty of sin, you know, off the hook. So every year, on average, the Supreme Court um, hears maybe of the of the, let's say, 60 case, 70 cases a year that it, 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 it hears after full oral argument and full briefing. Maybe it's 70 cases. Of those, maybe um, 25 are con law cases, maybe 30, um, but it, w- it would be less than half. Most of the cases, even for the Supreme Court, are statutory cases, important statutory cases, um, antitrust, uh, patent law, all sorts of things. So let's say there are 25 constitutional law cases. That's all of constitutional law in any given year, only 25 cases, but maybe three of them um, um, would be Fourth Amendment cases, possibly four. Um, and um, and it, it's interesting. So Wayne Lefebvre wrote um, this multi-volume treatise um, uh, that's um, filled with um, little descriptions of and medium-sized descriptions of all the Fourth Amendment case law generated by lower courts, especially the Supreme Court case law, of course, organizing the, the whole schema. But then all the little um, uh, uh, subdivisions in a box, you know, with a fox in the rain in a train, you know, this search and seizure, that search and seizure. So it is a vast world. Government's doing lots of searching and seizing, and there are categories and subcategories and sub subcategories. And Lefebvre has this huge tree, and it's about mainly what courts have done. And what courts are interested in, in part, is what courts have done. So, so they find that work of scholarship particularly important because Lefebvre is holding up a mirror to the judiciary itself, and the judiciary is looking in the mirror the way um, a ballet dancer um, uh, at the bar um, doing her exercises might be looking at the mirror to, to look at her technique or something, a ballerina. Um, so, so Wayne Lefebvre is not a general con law person across the board. He's a super specialist in the Fourth Amendment. His main ideas are not so much his own as simply categorization and descriptions of and, and putting into the right boxes um, all the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court and lower court case law. So he um, is, uh, and, and he's, if, he, if there are three or four Fourth Amendment cases a year, He's going to be a standard site in many of those cases. You add that up after, you know, he's 90 years old. That's going to be a lot of lifetime sites. The so, other person who, uh, I'm sorry, Andy. You well, were, before you know, we leave that one, I think that, you know, if we were to sort of summarize what you were saying, you've identified uh, certain aspects of a work that might make it likely to be cited. So it's it's relevant because the Supreme Court is taking up a lot of Fourth Amendment uh, cases. It's comprehensive, uh, so therefore, you know, it's one-stop shopping in a sense. Yes. And presumably it's excellent. Yes. So those would all be criteria that, uh, that would go into to something that's frequently cited. You might think, say, okay, is it cited because of this, because of that? You know, so those are, are some then, various all, reasons. All that said, I think with due respect to Wayne Lefebvre, whom I'm not sure I've ever met, but my brother tells me he's really a prince of a person. Um, I think the entire project is fundamentally wrong in the most basic premises. Here are the three big things about the Fourth Amendment that are 
features of the doctrine. The and by Court, the way, the case that you were cited in this year, I believe, was a Fourth Amendment case. It was. You see, so I was going to get to that. But I'm going to tell you also about Larry Tribe in just a minute. But let's take Wayne LaFave and the Fourth Amendment. So I write an article. It's called Fourth Amendment First Principles. It's in the Harvard Law Review. It's one of the 100 most cited articles of all time. And we're going to talk about citations, not just to scholars, but to scholarship. And, and within that, um, to individual pieces of scholarship, like this article is highly cited, or this book. Maybe we'll do books in a separate um, um, a podcast, because there's so much to talk about. But, but Fourth Amendment First Principles, in, in, which is 1994, Harvard Law Review. PL Law Journal turned it down. <laughs> um, but uh, so I had to settle for the Harvard Law Review, <laughs> which is actually, you know, uh, by, by rankings, often the number one ranked law review. Again, we're talking about rankings and citations. Um, so in 1994, I wrote an article, Fourth Amendment First Principles. Um, here's how I begin. First paragraph. The Fourth Amendment today is an embarrassment. Much of what the Supreme Court has said in the last half century, that the amendment generally calls for warrants and probable cause for all searches and seizures and exclusion of all illegally obtained evidence, is initially plausible but ultimately misguided. As a matter of text, history, and structure, and plain old common sense, these three pillars of modern Fourth Amendment case law are hard to support. In fact, today's Supreme Court does not really support them, except when it does. Warrants are not required unless they are. All searches and seizures must be grounded in probable cause, but not on Tuesdays. And unlawfully seized evidence must be excluded whenever five votes say so. Um, meanwhile, sensible rules that the amendment clearly does lay down are presupposed that all searches and seizures must be reasonable that warrants and only warrants always require probable cause, and that the officialdom should be held liable for unreasonable searches and seizures are ignored by the justices. Sometimes. The result is a vast jumble of judicial pronouncements that's not merely complex and contradictory, but often perverse. Criminals go free, while honest citizens are intruded upon in outrageous ways with little or no real remedy. If there are good reasons for these and countless other odd results, the court has not provided them. That's the first paragraph. Second paragraph, nor has the Academy. Now, I don't mention Wayne LaFave in particular, but he's writing this multi-volume treatise that's taking seriously these three basic pillars of Fourth Amendment case law, each one of which, it seems to me, is actually somewhere between wrong and preposterously wrong. Pillar one, the court basically says there's a warrant requirement. Okay, searches and seizures generally require warrant. And then it turns out that can't be true because there are a thousand counterexamples of that. And so they try to proliferate exceptions. And what Lefebvre does is try to categorize all the exceptions, you know. And to me, this is Ptolemy. This is epicycles. The problem is the planets don't revolve around the sun in a circle, which requires epicycles. They're actually ellipses, you know. This is Kepler and Brahe and 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 so so um, but but Mr. Wayne Lefebvre is Ptolemy. He's, you know, uh, with all his little epicycles. So that's the so-called warrant requirement. Then there's a probable cause requirement. The court says, well, searches and seizures generally require probable cause. Well, no, they don't. You know, stop and frisk don't require probable cause. And that's 90% of, 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 of real life searches and seizures every day. Or when you go to an airport and go through a metal detector, there's no probable cause. And a gazillion other things. Or into a courtroom um, and there's a metal detector or a government building. So, so again, 
um, Professor Ptolemy, I'm being now, you know, uh, 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 disrespectful in a way, and, oh, the tone of that first paragraph was mocking. It was disrespectful. And yet, courts cite it, and um, it's one of the 100 most cited articles all the time because I believe I'm speaking truth and truth to power. I'm not flattering them. I'm not holding up a mirror. Or if I am, I'm saying, this is a funhouse mirror. What you're doing is actually fakakta. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't cohere. Okay? So there's not a warrant requirement. There's not a probable cause requirement. And the exclusionary rule is outrageous. It lets guilty people, guilty of sin, get off scot-free. And you're not actually protecting innocent people with a damage remedy if the cops, you know, rough me up and brutalize me because of my race or, or a religion or politics. And I'm innocent. They don't find anything. What a surprise. Um, uh, and, and if my only um, uh, option recourse is the exclusionary rule, it's open season on people like me because there's nothing to exclude. I don't have any drugs on me or, or, or stolen goods or um, 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 uh, uh, murder weapons. So the three pillars of the Fourth Amendment case law that Wayne LaFave's treatise is trying to summarize and synthesize, I say every one of those is wrong. And they're alternative pillars. There's a different way of conceptualizing the field. It makes sense of much, but not all, of what courts have done. Some cases are going to need to be tossed overboard, but I say the key pillar should be reasonableness um, rather than warrants and probable cause um, and damage remedies rather than the exclusionary rule. Um, but um, so, so Wayne LaFave is, um, I don't know if he's number one or number two among living scholars, but he's, he's, and he's way more than I am, probably double. Um, um, that said, as a scholar, as a constitutional scholar, with due respect, I think the work is um, deeply, it's excellent in a way, it's taking seriously what courts have done, but if this is one quadrant where courts have done needs massive critique, and that is my view, that's not my view of every field of, of Supreme Court doctrine, but this field, I think, you know, is a mess, is an embarrassment, and the treatise um, multi-volume is taking seriously these pillars and working within that organizational schema rather than challenging it. Again, my metaphor would be Ptolemy um, rather than the Copernican Revolution. So you've just identified a limitation in the study of citation um, that, uh, you know, quantity isn't everything. You know, the fact that uh, this gentleman is, is cited so much, um, yes, you're cited as well a lot, but the point is that you can't use that alone as an indication of, let's say, authoritativeness or even correctness. Well, um, you could, and you could just say, well, there's, there's a reason that Lefebvre is cited way more than Amar, because Amar's a crazy man, and Wayne Lefebvre is a sane, sober scholar who's more respectful of the judicial output. And, yeah. here's, and here's my response to that. I know these judges, I know these justices, they're not rocket scientists, and I think they're wrong, but even if that weren't the case, they're contradictory. The cases can't all be right. They, they say there's a warrant requirement, but they don't do that. They say there's a probable cause requirement, but they actually don't do that. They are in the process of moving away from the exclusionary rule. I'm trying to accelerate that. So mine is in part an internal critique saying there are contradictions, and here's the way to resolve them. Enter Clarence Thomas. For you know, I've been saying, remember, I said this is a 1994 article. So, you know, that's more than a half century, a quarter century ago, excuse me. Um, and now for the first time, um, uh, Justice Thomas, actually the second time, he, he did it a couple of years ago, is beginning to actually 
a site, MySculpture, and say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this. I've been doing exclusion, you know, case after case after case, you know, for many years on the court. And now I'm beginning to think this may be a mistake. Maybe actually there's not a good constitutional foundation um, uh, for this. And does he cite cases? Yes, a little bit, because the court is eroding the exclusion rule. But he cites Amar as a theorist. Um, uh, and the irony is, if I were to prevail on this, after a certain point, I would cease to be cited, because actually my, my scholarship on, on this is we should get rid of the exclusion rule. And once that's finally done, you know, you don't need the scaffolding anymore. You just look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and so you forget that Michelangelo had to build the scaffolding first. So, so if I'm really lucky... I won't be cited after a certain point on that proposition. I'll be kicked to the curve. So that's, you know, an irony. So yet another uh, indication of the limitation of the, of the, of the value of just quantity of, of, uh, of citation. But I think what might be fair to say is that, um, that if there are a bunch of things that pass a certain threshold of, of citation, they're cited, cited often enough that one should pay attention to them, even if, you know, it's not the raw, quantity, but rather, you know, just the volume. Um, and Wayne LaFave is cited not merely by the Supreme Court, but by state and federal courts daily because they are in the exclusion business. And in my view, this is a disrespectful analogy, but they're like rats in the maze. And if you're a rat in the maze, you can't see the structure of the maze. Only a scholar can can actually rise above and see the grid. Um, and um, And so my honest view is that much of what our judges are doing up and down the food chain from the Supreme Court to the uh, to just um, uh, a, a, a state um, um, uh, a criminal uh, misdemeanor court or um, a, a, a criminal court trial court is misguided because they are excluding evidence every day um, of people who are guilty um, um, but the, the government acquired, the evidence in a constitutional problematic way. Here's what England says about all that. It's a famous case, Rex versus Leatham in 1861. This is a direct quote. They're talking about evidence that was illegally obtained. It matters not how you get it. If you seal it, even it would be admissible. England has no exclusionary rule and our law comes from England. And Andy, you know, my new book starts actually with um, a proto fourth amendment case, um, um, a search and seizure case. So, um, this is one area where I'm a bit of a crazy man. I'm actually at odds with what most judges every day do just reflexively, and I'm saying it's all a big mistake. And Wayne LaFave is more to his credit, um, you know, because you could criticize me, um, is taking seriously this vast body of judicial output and trying to systematize it. As I said, I think in the end, this whole project, I'm, I'm betting, I'm hoping, will collapse. Um, once the exclusionary rule goes, okay, um, and I think it needs to be replaced by a robust regime of um, damages, um, getting rid of official immunity of officers, that's going to be another, that's going to be an issue that the Supreme Court will take up in the next three years, I think. Um, and, and, and when it does, I'm hoping Clarence Thomas will actually be um, in alliance with progressives, with liberals saying, okay, um, he's saying get rid of the exclusion rule, but he's also saying let's give, um, which benefits unduly, um, guilty and, and unconstitutionally, 
guilty people. Let's swap that out for a more robust set of, of remedies for people who are innocent um, and who right now can't fully recover because the cops say, um, well, maybe this was unconstitutional, but we have this immunity or that immunity from um, uh, uh, damage liability. And Amar would get rid of those, uh, bring in punitive damages, class action, aggregation techniques, multipliers, all sorts of things. And maybe Clarence Thomas will be with me on all of that. Um, Wayne LaFay's treatise would need them to be radically, not in a small way, reoriented because it doesn't question the exclusionary rule. It, it cheers on the exclusionary rule. And then that's one of the three pillars. The other two, as I said, being the so-called warrant requirement and the so-called probable cause requirement. I say so-called because they're not really requirements at all. Um, these are connected in the following way. Um, and, and I'm one of two scholars, frankly, who showed how the three big um, it, questions of the Fourth Amendment are actually connected in a certain way. Um, the other one um, was Richard Posner, who's also actually generally reckoned one of the two most cited uh, legal scholars um, now alive, along with the great Cass Sunstein. Um, um, but Posner didn't develop it um, to the extent I did. Here's what I said. Precisely because there was no warrant requirement at the founding. Let me tell our audience something. No court in America, state or federal, ever excluded evidence because it was illegally obtained for the entire century after the Declaration of Independence. Okay, so the text doesn't say so. It doesn't say exclusionary rule. Um, no founder believed in exclusionary rule, none. Um, and, and I talk a lot about the early origins of search and seizure law in the early chapters of, of the words that made us. Um, uh, um, and uh, uh, um, uh, so um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit when we talk about citation studies about analogies to, let's say, um, and statistics to baseball statistics. Um, if you're a baseball fan, Camden Yards, that's where the Orioles play. That's named for Lord Camden, who decided some really important um, search and seizure cases, actually. And the litigant was a man named Wilkes, as in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, Wilkes County, Georgia, Wilkes County, North Carolina. Um, John Wilkes Booth is named for, for Wilkes. So, so um, I know the prehistory of the Fourth Amendment and the early history of the Fourth Amendment. Um, and for the first hundred years... There's no exclusionary, uh, no court in America ever excludes evidence. Um, and again, the text doesn't say so. The framers didn't believe that. Um, but they did believe that when government officials searched or seized improperly, um, um, people could sue them for damages. Um, and typically a jury would play a role in deciding whether the search or seizure was reasonable or not. Now, if that's the world, you see, warrants are not good things. They're bad things or they're problematic things because if a government official had a warrant from a judge, that did create a certain immunity. You couldn't sue the, the official because the judge had, had authorized the search with a warrant. So um, warrants were actually not required everywhere. Um, um, they were actually um, uh, limited. Yes, in some ways they, they told the police what they could and couldn't do, but in other ways, this is an individual judge making the decision rather than a jury of your peers making a decision about whether this is a proper search or not. So that's why the words read the way they do. They don't say 
all searches and seizures must have probable cause, all searches and seizures must have warrants. What they say is all searches and seizures must be reasonable and warrants must have probable cause. Um, why should warrants have probable cause? Because they're issuing from judges and they're dangerous devices, so we want to limit warrants, but that's not what the court says today. They say warrants are generally required, except where they're not. And, and even when you don't have a warrant, you need probable cause, but the text doesn't say any of those things, and the text fits together, coheres, only when you understand that the framers' world was not a rule world of the exclusionary rule, um, which is about judges. It was uh, about damage actions in which juries loomed large. And, and to me, that was excellent scholarship, actually explaining what the Fourth Amendment really was and wasn't. Richard Posner said some of these things first in, a, in, a, in an article um, called Rethinking the Fourth Amendment. He didn't develop it in the same detail. He's the only one uh, among scholars who saw how these things were connected. The great Telford Taylor saw some of these things, and I'm really building, standing mainly on Telford Taylor's shoulders. I think he was the greatest lawyer, perhaps, of the of the entire 20th century, maybe we'll talk about um, him. And he's cited by um, the Supreme Court again and again, although they haven't taken it seriously. So if you ask me in terms of scholarly achievement, Taylor should be up there, and, and, and Posner really did see these things. But in fact, and, and I'm systematizing everything, and Lefebvre's treatise isn't doing that. So it's good within a certain school of thought but in the end, I think actually that's the wrong school of thought. It's, you know, it's the, the best exemplar of Ptolemaic um, astronomy, but Ptolemy actually got it wrong. So when I think about your uh, the discussion about the Fourth Amendment, um, you know, I think we were a little all over the place there. I, I think that backing up to the amendment itself, um, you know, it says uh, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause and then it goes into the details of the warrant. You're right. You know, I know too much and so I forget that my audience doesn't know the words of the Fourth Amendment like the back of the head. But here's what I'd like you to do. Read, read, uh, uh, let me read the um, um, uh, amendment and and punctuate it as it were the way um, I would. And here's what I want our audience to hear. It does not say the following things. All searches and seizures must have warrants. It does not say the following thing. All searches and seizures must have probable cause. It doesn't say the following thing. Um, uh, searches and seizures, um, uh, if improper, um, uh, shall be um, uh, uh, responded to by exclusion of evidence. Um, so here's how I'm going um, to punctuate a certain way. The right of the people to secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable seizure uh, searches and seizures shall not be violated. Okay, so that's the command, not warrants, not probable cause, no unreasonable searches. So, um, so that's the first command, the right, uh, grammatically, the first clause is the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Now the second command, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. It, it's limiting warrants with a probable cause requirement, not all searches and seizures. It's not saying all warrants, you know, um, uh, um, 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 must issue for every search and every search and seizure must have a warrant. It says no warrant shall issue. It's limiting warrants, not requiring them and limiting them with a probable cause test. Why? 
not because that's a sensible test for all searches and seizures. It's not metal detectors at airports, but because we want to limit warrants in certain ways because they provide immunity um, of the, 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 the constable, the, the search or seizure, in a, a possible um, a jury action to, that, 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 that the victim of the search or seizure would otherwise be able to, to bring. So if there's no exclusionary rule, and there isn't at the founding, and there is a tort remedy for innocent people, and there is at the founding, and that tort remedy is about the reasonableness of search or seizure, the Fourth Amendment isn't criminal procedure law. It's tort law. It's property law. And who decides in tort law generally whether what the defendant did was reasonable or not? That's a jury. Um, and so this should be taught, actually, again, in property law or tort law. Um, and why are then where do warrants come in? They're dangerous devices. Maybe they're useful in some ways. They, the cops actually um, go to a court first to get sort of um, permission. Um, and that's in, in one way good, but in one way it's not so great because in that warrant procedure, it's a judge acting alone rather than 12 jurors. Um, it's not a public proceeding. The judge is acting ex parte. And that would be um, uh, uh, search ease, uh, the CZ, that the individual citizen isn't even in, in the courtroom. Um, so um, the jury action in a Mars world is better because it's 12 people, it's public, um, and the, uh, the, the citizen is, is there in the courtroom and the citizen's representative. So warrants have their place, um, but they need to be limited in certain ways. And that's the Copernican, Tycho Brahe, uh, Keplerian uh, sort of revolution in um, the physics of, of the Fourth Amendment. That's what I said in the first paragraph of Fourth Amendment First Principles. And with all due respect to Professor Lefebvre, whose, whose work is really a towering piece of scholarship of a certain sort, um, um, uh, I'm basically saying the entire foundations of that massive project are basically... Um, uh, uh, wrong. You know, as a as a citizen, my first reaction when I hear like "let's get rid of the exclusionary rule" is that it it the exclusionary rule serves to limit the power of the, of the of the police and and of the government, and therefore, mm -hmm. you know, to just get rid of that in the absence of any other action seems like a tilting of the scales of power in an unacceptable way. The Constitution's designed to you know in part ensure certain rights and limit governmental power. Um, mm -hmm. Those are deep themes within the, within the Constitution, as we've discussed recently in our uh, Ever Scholar course. Um, and so this is a means of limiting that. So uh, the thing that's appealing about your framework is that it takes the it may it may lessen the the hand on the scale in one direction, but then it balances it with an effect in the other direction. In other words, I think many people are less sensitive to the notion that you can't that there's sovereign immunity for certain things and, you know, and the, the police can misbehave and you have no recourse. So we tend to, as, as laymen, you know, fall back on aphorisms like it's better to, you know, uh, to set free 10 guilty people than convict one innocent person and so forth. And so the exclusionary rule has a certain in, intuitive value um, in connection with those aphorisms. But I think, you know, you've shown that in, in many ways it protect it, it protects the guilty and and prosecutes the and and damages the innocent, um, so that that's when you look at it that way, that's not a, a great system. Exactly. So I say the Fourth Amendment is right now upside down. It's perverse. And to be sure, our constitutional rights are against the government. That's true. 
but are you really more secure in your person, house, paper, and effect if basically people who try to kill you or, or a loved one or, you know, um, uh, rape you are, get away with it, uh, are intruded upon? I would say, you know, yes, the Fourth Amendment technically doesn't create rights against um, itself. The Constitution doesn't create rights against um, murderers and, and rapists and, and, and robbers. But, you know, great, the government isn't violating, you know, my, my person. The rapist is, the, the, the murderer is, the, 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 the robber is. So in the framers' world, Guilty people had fewer rights, that no exclusionary rule, but innocent people had more rights. And I actually think that's a better model. The, the, um, the reason, in my view, that we have protections in criminal procedure are generally not to protect the guilty as such, qua guilty, but to protect innocent people from being erroneously convicted. Um, and, um, and so I cheer when... Um, actually, the bloody knife is introduced, and, and I'm, I'm writing about the bloody knife pre-OJ. This is 94, but I cheer when the bloody knife is introduced um, and the murderer um, uh, is convicted. And um, uh, I, I, um, the feminist in me um, is offended by the exclusionary rule. When you read the Supreme Court cases about the exclusionary rule, a lot of these cases are men doing unspeakable things to women, and the Supreme Court are letting the men off scot-free. Um, so um, it might not seem liberal, in quotes, or progressive to uh, critique the exclusionary rule, but I think when you understand the whole package of my Fourth Amendment ideas, I think it is a net plus. I can give you more protection against um, uh, uh, more deterrence of unreasonable searches and seizures um, at um, less social cost, um, um, not imposing these costs on the innocent victims of, of crime of the world. Um, so a better, uh, more deterrence at less social cost with a better distribution, uh, meaning um, um, guilty people um, uh, suffer and innocent people um, benefit more. Um, uh, uh, so um, if you're not getting enough deterrence, increase the, the multipliers of the damage remedy. Um, say, you know, it's quadruple damages or quintuple route of um, uh, punitive damages. The same, uh, uh, rather, uh, so you, you suffer certain actual damages, but, but if we're not getting enough deterrence, um, we can just pump up the multiplier the way we do in antitrust law or other things. Once you understand it's tort law, it's property law, not criminal procedure law, because it's not about the exclusionary rule. It's about um, suing. What law protects you it, um, in your person, house, paper, effects? Because that's how it begins. The right of the people to be secure in their person, you know, our bodies, our houses, our papers, our effects. It's basically property law and tort law. Um, and we, but we don't teach it that way. So that's why I'm, I am, speaking of citations, very proud of this article. It's just an article. It's not a treatise. Fourth Amendment First Principles. It is one of the hundred most cited articles uh, of all time, and it's cited. That's among scholars, and it's cited by the Supreme Court. Um, um, it's been cited many times by Supreme Court justices across the spectrum because, as I said, the Supreme Court hears lots of Fourth Amendment cases. Um, all that said, Wayne Lefebvre is cited way, way, way more. Um, um, so, um, uh, um, and and if I even prevail in the end, the citations to me will dry up. So I'll probably never achieve, you know, the number of Wayne LaFave citations, even in the Fourth Amendment. Um, but this has been an interesting case study 
um, of uh, 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 just at the begin, Andy, with your question about one citation, the, the one citation I had in the Supreme Court last year, which wasn't a majority opinion, it was in a concurrence. Um, and um, you're going to see citations more in concurring and dissenting opinions, typically, because those are often proposing, you know, new ways of thinking about um, Supreme Court um, uh uh, um, uh, what the Supreme Court should be doing. Um, often these are critiques of existing precedent, and they first emerged in a, a separate opinion, in a concurrence or dissent. So it's not a surprise that this citation came not in a majority opinion, but in a separate opinion. And it's not a surprise that it came from Justice Thomas, because he's not afraid to rethink things from the ground up um, and, and critique precedent, as originalists sometimes do, in the name of text history and structure. It's not even a surprise that although I'm um, a Democrat and he's a Republican, that's where the citation will come from because um, we are both playing a law game and not a political game. And the law game is originalist, and we're critiquing case law in the name of um, first principles of text history and structure. And that's just not the game that Wayne Lafayette is playing um, very well within his premises in his epic treatise. So that's one of the two people who is alive, but I'm saying, oh, it's not an active scholar, not in my generation, because he's emeritus. And when, so I think this discussion, although it might seem to be a, a bit uh, roving, I, th I think that it actually brings up some interesting points about citations. Because if, you go, if you're going to use a citation in isolation, okay, who cited the most? Well, you know, it, it loses a little bit of context. It's like, and there's a lot of, I mean, the purpose of looking at at numbers of citations and so forth is to is to gain you know gain a certain labeling a certain information about you know who's who's uh, a scholar that one might pay attention to and so forth you know and there, in that sense it has something in common with sports statistics which you alluded to earlier so uh, you might want to know you know who has the best you know uh, OPS in baseball or something to see, you know, who's who's a, a, an effective hitter. But I mean, if I see, because you're a baseball person, you did. I know what OPS is, but not everyone, you know, knows on, on base percentage and slugging percentage and all the rest. So, so you need to tell them a little bit about saber metrics in baseball. Right. So saber metrics is a is basically a fancy name for statistics, but it's a it's a uh, sort of a revision uh, or a revisionist type of of statistics. So it kind of the premise of, of, I think, the godfather of uh, sabermetrics, Bill James, was that many of the metrics that we use to evaluate baseball players uh, w didn't tell us what we thought they told us. Um, so that, for example, if we look at someone's batting average and let's say they hit, you know, 275 or something like that, well, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like somebody that that is, is a good hitter to hit near the top of your lineup where you want to get on base. But it turns out if that hitter strikes out the rest of the time or hits into a lot of double plays, never walks, that means that he has uh, a very low on-base percentage. Actually, what percentage of the time does he get on base, which is presumably what you want your you know, a hitter near the top of the lineup to do. Which would so, be typically batting average plus so walking average. Right, and hit by pitch as well. Um, yeah. So, oh, yes, yes. Some people actually lean in. I, yes. I remember one guy who always gets Ron Hunt think, yeah. when I was growing up. Yes, Ron Hunt, right, yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. First met to be an all-star in 1964. <laughs> and Andy's going to the Mets game later today, yes. um, in case our audience... <laughs> if we finish this in time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway... Um, 
So, so the, yeah, the, so, uh, I, Andy, um, just to touch you off, anyone, I'm going to talk again about what I wrote in my Yale website. I actually refer to myself in a certain way, uh, uh, um, this difference to statistics as um, a triple crown winner um, at, at Yale, um, a certain three prizes or something. And, and the traditional triple crown was batting average, uh, uh, B, um, RBIs, runs batted in, and home runs. But now we think, those, those aren't necessarily the post Bill James the best metrics even for a hitter putting aside you know how good a fielder someone is or, or some so what are better metrics than the classic triple crown or at least additional ones that you'd want or another way to put it is that we're asking the question about a statistic what does it actually tell you instead of just accepting okay this is somebody telling you this is how you tell who's the best we actually look at the statistic and say what does it tell you so number of citations what does that tell you well you might want to you know break it down a little bit you just you know pointed out how uh, this gentleman from the this professor from the University of Illinois well he's cited a lot in part because he's working in a field that the Supreme Court spends a large percentage of its time uh, dealing with so therefore of course they're going to cite him a lot. Um, so, so perhaps the breadth of scholarship uh, is relevant as well as the depth. This is narrow. Perhaps another scholar right. might be broader. We're going to talk about Larry Tribe, who is um, a broader. But, but in baseball, you know, you were about to tell us about slugging percentage and on-base percentage and OPS and all of that. So, so the, uh, wins against replacement. These are all newer um, uh, uh, statistics that may tell us some additional and important thing. So yes, you just identified one. So we used to talk about five tool players. You know, he can hit, he can run, he can hit for average, he can hit for power, he can run, he can field, he can throw. Okay. Um, and and um, someone like Larry Tribe um, and, and, and Willie Mays was, you know, could, could do it all. Um, uh, and, and, and if you just look at Willie Mays at the plate, you're going to miss that the guy actually was good at, at base stealing, you know, and he was a, you know, a great fielder um, um, and he had an arm. Um, uh, um, uh, so. Um, and he can do uh, it in style, which actually, oh. I think may actually be relevant from, uh, in this question. Like, you know, who's a drier writer who can appeal to the mass audience as well as, um, you know, and educate the public as well as to, you know, get the justice's attention. You saw a lot of style slash attitude in that first paragraph of Fourth Amendment first principles. I, you know, I did not hold back. Uh, you know, I, I was there was a lot of snark there to make the analytic point. Um, it's said that Willie Mays wore a cap one or two sizes too small, so that when he, you know, chased a ball, the cap would fly off, and and that was dramatic. Um, and they say that Joe DiMaggio, you know, always made it look easy because he was always there ahead of the ball, in part because. I'm told. I look. I never. I never saw him in the flesh. I. I, I did see Willie Mays many times because I, I grew up in in uh, San Francisco and, and used to um, go to uh, San Francisco Giants games. Um, uh, um, but um, DiMaggio, it was said, always just got such a. Uh, first of all, um, position himself properly. He so he always you know knew where the, the batter was likely to hit the ball uh, given how the pitcher was pitching. Um, but he also it was said usually got a great jump. And so he, he made it look easy because he was often there ahead of time. This is actually, uh, DiMaggio is often used, I think, in classrooms as an example of the uh, Italian word sprezzatura, which in the Renaissance was the, one of the greatest assets that you could have, which was that you had excellence, but, but you didn't look like you were trying very hard. Um, 
so uh, let, let's just switch a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, we've told people just a little bit about about different uh, new ways of thinking about baseball excellence beyond the traditional triple count. But but the deeper point is that any metric that you use is going to be of limited value, and you have to. There may be going to be other metrics that you need to supplement, and then ultimately there may need to be a kind of qualitative assessment once you even have all the the quantitative data. Although maybe eventually artificial intelligence will be able to to you know replicate the the the, the, the qualitative assessment. And these um, are these are important questions because you might say, well, why would I even care about about numbers of citations? And one reason I think is because it's difficult to evaluate. Um, scholars and experts um, across universities. So you might be able, you might have a certain pecking order, you know, within a university, and you have a, a, a lofty title, Sterling Professor of, of Law, which, which says something, but it says something about where you are at Yale. It doesn't necessarily say where you are compared with, let's say, a university professor at Harvard, you know, or something like that. How do you compare these, these two professors? And it reminds me of, uh, you know, when when our, our kids applied for college, you know, we, our kids were, would be evaluated by these, you know, top schools relevant compared to other students in their school, but how do they compare them to, to students in other schools? Um, so, so this is one way, this is sort of a national or even international uh, forum, you know, upon which people can be evaluated and who refers to who as being authoritative is one way of, of seeing, you know, who's the best and who should we pay attention to? So an, a justice or a lawyer or a citizen might want to compare a scholar to scholar, Amar versus Lefebvre, who's more likely to be correct if, you know, they are not an expert or something. And, and these metrics are, are relevant to that way. And Lefebvre is a Fourth Amendment scholar, but he's not a constitutional scholar across the board. He cited more um, it's true. Um, so, um, but, but so a judge or a lawyer or a citizen might compare scholars. Scholar, you know, who has the the better reputation? Uh, law is ad hominem. We we look to see, you know, uh, um, what your track record is. Are you well respected or not um, uh, by other um, legal experts? Um, uh, um, but we also compare school to school. Um, um, and one way of comparing Yale to Harvard or Harvard to Stanford or Stanford to um, University of Illinois um, might be um, scholarly, uh, how many um, highly um, uh, cited scholars um, each um, school has, and highly, added, uh, highly cited by whom? By judges, um, by Supreme Court justices, by um, other legal scholars, um, by the academy more generally for interdisciplinary work. Each one of those is a slightly different question. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, citations or rankings of schools, which are increasingly important in the modern world, U.S. news rankings. And like. This is connected to what we've already been talking about, about how it turns out um, many of the justices have come from certain schools. Um, so um, I'm going to tell you about Larry Tribe in just a second, but we, in earlier episodes, talked about the old schools um, and, and how they uh, play an important role in constitutional discourse at the founding, you know, the, the nine oldest schools and uh, colleges in America, or at least nine of the oldest, the seven oldest IVs plus Rutgers and William and Mary. We talked about in the old schools in one episode or several episodes. Um, we've um, talked about how 
on today's uh, court, um, eight of the nine justices went to Harvard or Yale Law School. Um, there are many law schools in the country. So we've talked about some of these things in previous episodes, how um, clerkships are the first uh, uh, um, rung on a judicial career ladder. And so many people, they go to certain law schools and then they clerk um, within the judiciary and then they move up um, within the judiciary. But some law schools generate a lot more clerkships than, than other law schools. So we've already been, we're talking about the, um, the ecosystem of the larger legal world that includes the academy as well as the judiciary, as well as, of course, um, other institutions. We talked about the Biden Commission, for example, other, other parts of government. Congress obviously plays a role. On my website, I mentioned that I regularly testify before Congress at the invitation of both parties. This seems to be yet another that's a statistic of certain sort um, 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 and another metric. Um, so let me contrast Wayne LaFave, who was a, a great treatise writer um, within the Fourth Amendment, to another great treatise writer who writes about, the constitu- about constitutional law across the board, and that's the great Larry Tribe. He's the other living person who's cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, we're not talking about academic citations. We're not talking about citations in all courts, but only the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, you know, uh, each statistic captures something but misses something. Larry Tribe is cited um, more than Amar, and not by a little bit, by a lot. Um, uh, he's also, but but in, in the way that I actually uh, uh, did the statistics, I talked about scholars in my generation and tops in my generation Supreme Court citations, or or tops among active scholars because he's emeritus. His treat he, he actually didn't write that many law review articles. Um, I've written probably more law review articles than Larry Tribe. Um, his extraordinary contribution is this um, massive treatise, um, and it's a treatise of American constitutional law, which is mainly about Supreme Court cases, not Fourth Amendment cases alone, all Supreme Court cases about the Constitution. So his book is less about the text, history, and structure of the Constitution, the way some of my scholarship has been. It's, again, holding up a mirror to the Supreme Court of what the Supreme Court has decided and um, it gets updated, is deciding um, uh, across the entire range of constitutional issues. Fourth Amendment cases yet, but First Amendment cases and and just compensation cases and cruel and unusual punishment cases and separation of powers cases and federalism cases and and you name it. Um, uh, This treatise tries to basically... Um, once again, n- not merely describe, but to organize and theorize. And it's a more deeply academic and theoretical project, I think, than Wayne LaFay's. It, it tries to sort of understand what the Supreme Court is doing across the entire waterfront of what we call constitutional law. It's hugely ambitious. I am a, an enormous admirer of Larry Tribe's um, achievement. Um, uh, and, and he's still around and he actually litigates cases before the Supreme court from time to time. He's a lawyer as well as a scholar in a way that I'm not, I don't uh, practice before the court. He actually is one of the people on the Biden, uh, uh, commission. Um, so, um, uh, on judicial, uh, reform, um, um, he's an advisor to presidents. Uh, Barack Obama comes to prominence because he's the first black 
um, president of the Harvard Law Review. How does he get that gig? Because Larry Tribe, several months earlier, picked him as Larry Tribe's research assistant, and other people at, at Harvard, his fellow students, noticed that because Larry Tribe picks only you know the best among his research assistants. There's this person named Elena Kagan. There's this person named Ron Klain, who's the um, uh, president of uh, Biden's chief of staff. Um, many others, many other epic scholars. Larry Tribe has a good eye for young legal talent. Um, Jane Raskin worked for him, um, a prominent congressperson. So Tribe had a great reputation for being a great lawyer, a great scholar, but also a great judge of legal horseflesh. A great, if we're, this is a baseball analogy, he's a good talent scout. He's not just a good player, he's a good scout. He spots people early, young talent. He spots a young Obama saying, this guy is good. I'm going to ask him to be my research assistant. Obama then becomes president of the Harvard Law Review, first black president of the Harvard Law Review, in part because fellow students noticed that the tribe had anointed him. Um, and, and then Time Magazine wrote a, wrote a little squib, like this is notable culturally. Harvard is an important cultural um, um, uh, uh, institution, um, uh, and Harvard Law School is an important part within Harvard, and the Harvard Law Review within the Harvard Law School. First black president of Harvard Law Review, a one-paragraph or two-paragraph squib. Obama parlays that into a book deal. An agent is in, sees that and says, hey, are you interested in writing a little story of your life? That becomes dreams from my father, and now we're off to the races. Okay, That's Larry Tribe. Um, and his treatise, in my view, is epic. He's a very impressive lawyer. He's a real imaginative legal thinker. Truthfully, I think he has much more range and, and, and legal imagination. It's generated many more genuinely original ideas than Wayne Lefebvre, um, who is merely, in my view, using actually mistaken judicial categories to, to organize Fourth Amendment um, um, judicial decision-making. Um, Tribe is a critiquing um, uh, 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 co the court, as well as describing it in in amazingly generative and and and, and powerful ways. It, the original um, edition of the casebook was about a thousand pages or so, and I think it had at least four hundred article ideas. You know, um, in in those thousand pages, four hundred little uh, discussions that could be um, uh, uh, expanded into you know a full length uh, a tenure article. Um, uh, if, if you really thought about. The interesting idea that he that he's just slipped into to this sentence or that paragraph. So I'm a huge admirer of Larry Tribe. So from the point of view of someone looking at at citations here, um, the uh, the treatise is going to be cited a lot by the Supreme Court because it's about the Supreme Court. It um, is. So so one thing there, perhaps. What about lower courts? Do they tend to cite it as well? Yes. Um, lower courts also cite another treatise um, that came out after Tribe. It tries to be in the Tribe tradition. It's by Erwin Chemerinsky. Um, students cite that treatise a lot. Student notes cite that treatise a lot. Lower court judges cite that treatise a lot. The Supreme Court doesn't cite that treatise a lot. I, truthfully, what is it a treatise of? Is it also a Supreme Court treatise? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's it, Tribe Light. Um, Truthfully, I, I like Irwin personally. I don't think I've ever cited it. And if I did, it was probably a mistake on my part to have cited it or some student editor inserted it in. And I don't cite it because I don't think it's at all like Tribe's Treatise, even though it, it, it cited a ton 
uh, or in Chemerinsky's treatise. But again, interestingly, not by the Supreme Court, by lower federal courts, or by students everywhere. Um, and why don't I love it as much? Because um, to the extent it has ideas, they're generally, I think, um, bad ideas, implausible ideas. Um, and um, and I'm, uh, I'm not um, a fanboy of Erwin Chemerinsky's body of work to at all the same extent that I'm a fanboy of Larry Tribe's body of work. I don't think I've ever said that publicly before. Um, I just did. Um, it's nothing personal, because I said I, I, I like Erwin exceedingly. Um, he is not a role model for me in a way that Larry Tribe is. Um, and um, and uh, so I'm, you know, this is an honest podcast where we're actually talking about um, the players, and and um, and I consider myself a player or someone who at least wants to be a player. And you have to have role models. So if if you're um, um, uh, your name is Bobby Bonds and you're um, uh, in the outfield at the San Francisco Giants, and and you can. Um, hit for power and you can run and you're going to look up to Willie Mays. Um, um, and actually, um, uh, he's going to be a role model for you. Um, he's going to, you, when you have a kid actually who has some baseball talent, actually you're going to ask Willie Mays if he'll be godparents to, to your kid. Your kid is going to be named Barry Bonds. Um, and, and Barry Bonds thinks a lot about Willie Mays, you see, because that's a role model because Bonds in a way is a Mays like player. He's an outfielder. He, he can steal bases. He can he can um, hit for average and power. Um, uh, and you know he's a triple crown um, threat. He can he can he can knock runs in. He's a slugger. Um, um, he, he can get a lot of doubles. Willie Mays can get a lot of doubles um, um, uh, early in his career, especially because he's, he's he's speedy. So um, so if you are a young con law person, as I once was, you know I look around and say, you know who who whom should I really study? I should re really study um, Larry Tribe because uh, he's done it. That's what I want to do. I never wrote a treatise. I'm writing a different kind of book. I think we're going to talk about books in uh, maybe a, a follow-up episode. Treatises are a different kind of legal scholarship than articles, which are a different kind of legal scholarship than books for a general audience. Um, those are three different kinds of legal scholarship. So first of all, um... You might look up to Larry Tribe as Barry Bonds looked up to Willie Mays. This is a audio podcast, not a video podcast. If it were a video podcast, we would know that you did not take steroids um, the, <laughs> the way that, that Barry Bonds did to try to be the next Larry Tribe. Um, but uh, seriously, though, I mean, this, this does point to if you're going to use citations – as a way of evaluating who's a great scholar or who's a scholar that we should pay a lot of attention to, um, you're bringing up some of the limitations of it, or at least why you have to give context um, to the citation. So one thing that you are alluding to is who is citing the citers. Um, so, so that, um, you know, you're, you might cite Larry Tribe, um, you know, uh, and, and he in turn is describing other things. So, so that, you know, uh, and then who's citing you? So, uh, whereas you say, well, you know, l lower courts are citing uh, Professor Chemerinsky, but um, but the Supreme Court is citing, and lower courts are citing uh, Lawrence Tribe. So you want to look a little bit more in depth than just number of citations. Uh, 
That, that's such a brilliant observation, Andy. Um, when we talk about books, we're going to talk about, well, what do you know, ordinary readers think, audiences, Amazon ratings, Goodreads ratings, um, but also you know, what do experts think, the, the, the expert reviewers or the people um, in your field, and those aren't always the same thing. So here's an interesting thing that I think we can probably, um, uh, we'll probably be seeing more of, like we haven't yet. What do the, um, whom do the most cited people Site or whom do they actually, even if they don't set them, look up to the most? You know, who who are Cass Sunstein's role models? You know, who are Larry Tribe's role models? Or if you know, if I'm actually relatively highly cited, it's relevant to you that I say I respect Cass Sunstein a lot. He does something different for me, but he does it really well. Um, um, I I I really look up to Larry Tribe, and even though Erwin Chemerinsky is more cited than I am by certain metrics, not by others, not in the Supreme Court, not by a long shot. Um, um, I don't look up to him the way I look up to Cass Sunstein and Larry Tribe. And I don't in part because I, I think his ideas are um, um, uh, not the sort of ones that um, have, have impressed and inspired me, in fact. Um, here's one big critique that I have of Erwin Chemerinsky. He's very political. Um, and he's almost never said anything that wasn't actually the same as his political views and very PC, and he's very much on the left. And I am telling you something about myself when in my own website I say, oh, he's, been, he's cited by scholars across the spectrum. He's invited to testify um, in Congress by members of both parties. He's won awards both from the Federalist Society, which is on the right, and the American Bar Association, which is on the left. These are my own um, choices about how to describe myself because I'm actually, if you read that little bio, which, I, which is the one that I composed as opposed to Wikipedia, which I didn't touch, or, or Akilamar.com, which Andy, you composed, maybe you know, in, in, in a conversation with me, but, but, but you composed that. When I'm describing myself, I'm telling you, oh, here's what matters to me. It, it, I, I, I do take a lot of pride in my citations, not just by judges um, and justices, but by scholars. Um, that, that's something that, that, that I think um, is, is not a perfect metric of anything, but it's something. But, but I also pay attention to the distribution um, um, uh, um, across the spectrum. That's an ideological distribution where you're saying, oh, are you being cited merely by students or by um, um, the most expert of, of, of experts? Um, uh, so, um, yeah, um, not just how many um, sites, but, but who and what kinds of sites. And we haven't even talked about whether you're cited with approval or disapproval. Maybe someone you know, just said something really preposterous, and then a lot of the sites are, for ridiculous views, CMR. So just to push back a, you know, slightly on that, I would say that there's a little bit of self-referential uh, bias here. So you a are... Only a little? <laughs> well, well, no, well, here. I mean, no, no. I think it's in, it's in an interesting way. So, you know, you're, you're mentioning with approval, or citing with approval, if you will, um, the fact that you are cited by scholars across the spectrum. And Professor Chemerinsky, you say, is cited mostly by scholars that agree with, you know, the, that are uh, yeah. of a political... And, that, and, and that, in fact, his scholarship has a political bent and that he, he comes out somewhat predictably on the sides of every issue. And you don't like that because you are an originalist and you believe that there should be a certain 
you know, nonpartisan approach to interpreting the Constitution. But if one is a legal realist and believes that the law should conform with certain notions of policy, um, like maybe a William O. Douglas or someone like that, then you would disapprove of your citation from across the, the spectrum and approve of Professor Chemerinsky. So, so this Perfect. reflects a certain you know, underlying approach, which may not be right or wrong, but is a way, is a lens through which to look at these uh, this way. Perfect. Uh, so you mentioned legal realism. So the idea that law is merely politics was once very much in vogue, but no judge has ever quite said so openly. And when I came to law school, I had heard about William Douglas. I thought he was going to be my hero. By the end of law school, I thought he was um, a joke. And he was Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Yeah, he was really brilliant, and but he was really into. And and, and um, uh, uh, William Brennan um, said uh, once, Justice Brennan, that he had met two geniuses in his life. One was Richard Posner, um, whom I disagree with sharply, who is a total legal realist, and uh, I don't think has the right view of law. And the other was Bill Douglas. But Bill Douglas is not well respected in general today, um, and um, because he he just tended to um, be too political. Someone I never heard of before, I came to law school, Hugo Lafayette Black, who actually had a principled jurisprudence, it was more originalist, I came uh, to see as my hero. So if Irwin is just a legal realist, the problem is no judge openly says today, in a confirmation hearing or anywhere else, law is just politics. No one ever says that in their confirmation hearings. Not um, Sonia Sotomayor on the left, not um, uh, Kavanaugh, center right, not... um, um, uh, uh, Sam Alito, even though he might be a bit of a legal realist, you know, and, and so do I might be. A oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, what they as, say as, to be confirmed may not be the same. Right, as what they but, they, but they don't admit that. Okay, mm-hmm. so which is at least a relevant fact. Now, Irwin, here's actually, if you're principled, you don't have to be an originalist, but the principled alternatives would be you're a precedent person and you take precedent really seriously. Um, or you're um, a kind of pragmatist, um, but pragmatism wouldn't be the same as just, you know, um, your personal politics. Um, So Irwin's treatise does not purport to be originalist, but it also doesn't purport to be merely political. It it purports to be a description of the cases. That's doctrinal. That's the cases. And what Irwin says about the cases sometimes is absolutely in his own scholarship, somewhere between wrong and preposterous, okay? So he just wrote an op-ed recently in the New York Times saying that the way California is doing its recall is a violation of landmark Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court decisions. And what he says is not wrong, it's embarrassingly wrong. And the person who recently said that are two people, um, two people I know well, the Yale Law School graduates whom I very much respect, Evan Kaminker, former dean of the University of Michigan Law School, and Vikram Amar, the current dean of the University of Illinois College of Law. And they wrote a response to Chemerinsky saying, what are you talking about? This is absurd. We'll we'll put it up on um, the the website. Um, So Chemerinsky is not making an originalist case that the recall of of, uh, Gavin Newsom is unconstitutional. Um, because he's not an originalist. He's saying this violates landmark Supreme Court precedents from the 1960s about one person, one vote. Um, Westbury versus Sanders and and Baker versus Carr and Reynolds versus Sims. And the idea that um, uh, this this would be laughed out of the Supreme Court, I believe, 9-0. So he's making an argument about precedent that's just a, you know, crazy reading of the precedents, uh, in fact. 
Um, and I'm not sure he would do it if it were, in fact, I think he wouldn't write this piece if it were a Republican governor um, facing um, a recall in California. Now, the way California does this recall is deeply problematic, in my view, in various ways, but that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. And Chemerinsky is saying it violates certain Supreme Court opinions. And I know those opinions like the back of my hand. I've written about those opinions in my books, um, uh, Baker versus Carr, Reynolds versus Sims, Westbury versus Sanders. And I'm saying um, uh, when Chemerinsky writes this, I found it somewhere between wrong and embarrassing. Um, uh, and so, um, and, and I understand it aligns with this politics, but legal realism is not that um, a valid, um, uh, or just lobbying politics is not the avowed philosophy of any justice on the Supreme Court. Um, even if some justices do it, it's, it's the jurisprudence that dare not speak his name, at least um, among judges, because it doesn't have legitimacy. Ordinary people don't accept um, that. And at some deep level, ordinary, the Constitution is a project that ordinary people have to accept um, for the Supreme Court to have legitimacy. So, yeah, Irwin, um, my problem, I, I've told you this before, I want my um, ep, um, epitaph, um, uh, my tombstone, to say his errors were symmetric. Okay, I'm going to make mistakes, but sometimes they're, you know, um, mistakes of a conservative sort. Sometimes they're mistakes of a, of a liberal sort, because I um, want to actually try to get the law right, and I think the law is not pure politics. Um, when Irwin's um, errors are always, 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 because we all make mistakes on the left, that's not a role model for me. It is for lots of, you know, 20 two-year-old law students, okay? And a lot of his sites are in student notes and things like that. And maybe lower court judges who are frustrated that they're not in the Supreme Court, you know, might try to you know, cite Chemerinsky for this proposition or that one, and they're going to get actually slapped down by the Supreme Court when the issue goes up on appeal sometimes. Um, or maybe they don't realize that Chemerinsky is not actually an unbiased descri uh, describer of um, the cases, he, um, he's got a bit of an uh, agenda in a way um, that um, Tribe has said conservative things in his lifetime. You know, Tribe actually said, oh, there might be a right, a constitutional right to have um, guns in the home. And he said that before the Supreme Court was all in on that. Um, um, now, his was a moderate um, individual rights position, um, but but still, it, it, um, um, it, it was... Um, uh, not the standard liberal um, a viewpoint on, on that. Tribe has taken states' rights seriously in, in various ways, even though that – and did so at a time when that wasn't uh, conventionally seen as the liberal argument uh, uh, in general. Yes, Tribe is left of center. Um, I think he'd you know, admit to that. But he actually, I think, would be horrified if someone said, rightly or wrongly um, – you know, you're always on the left, and you know, because um, he would say, "No, that's not. That's actually not what I'm trying to do." Um, and Irwin, if we administer true serum, would say, "Yes, of course, law is politics, and and I'm on the left, and and that's what I do." You know, to say that someone is left of center is not to say that that they're wrong. In other words, the, you know, the the right answer is not necessarily in the center. So, yes. so if the Constitution has a meaning, yep. and the meaning tends to reside left of center on the average. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Yes, um, I'm, a liberal, I'm a liberal originalist, so that's definitely what I mean. But Erwin, truth be told, doesn't care very much about what the Constitution, quote, really, unquote, means. That's just not his game at all. It's not what interests him. And um, 
uh, to the extent, but he, and he used to be, you know, describer of the court, but many of his new books have been screeds, um, critiques of the court, but it's always from, you know, but what's his baseline? And his baseline isn't, as mine would be, what the Constitution really, quote unquote, says. His baseline is just, it's not um, um, leftist enough. So then getting back to the question of citations, um, one would then expect, and I think you, you implied this earlier, that if we looked at who cited him, um, you mentioned students and, and so forth and, and lower courts. So it might be, uh, I'm just guessing, you know, that it, it might be people that agree with his political philosophy in general. Um, and Conservatives do not cite Erwin Chemerinsky. Conservative mm-hmm. scholars don't and conservative justices don't. Um, and um, and probably conservative lower court judges generally don't. Um, yes, so so not just number, but distributional pattern. And I take pride in the fact that again, I'm, I'm invited by um, uh, uh, members of both political parties to testify before Congress. Or I'm, you know, I I I I really do think I have respect. Of, um, um, uh, just a minute ago, Steve Calabresi walked into my office. He's a co-teacher of mine and the co-founder of the Federalist Society. Um, and I have friends in the ABA. Um, uh, uh, won prizes from the ABA, and that's very much a, 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 a left-leaning um, organization. My sites on the Supreme Court come from justices across the spectrum. Um, and last year, it was not a bad year, it was one. You know, a, a, a bad year is zero sites for me. A good year is one. A very good year would be, you know, two, uh, maybe three. It's, it's like if you're a tennis player, um, and you're really, really ambitious or a, a golfer, you know, if you want to be the best of the best of the best, you know, in any given year, you want to win at least, you know, one of the Grand Slam tournaments, you know, Wimbledon or the Australian Open or the U.S. Open, or if you're a golfer, you know, the Masters or the U.S. Open or, or, or the British Open or what have you. Unfortunately, you don't get $3 million for being cited the way Djokovic will get $3 million for winning the Open. Yeah, but truthfully, I don't know what I would do with $3 million, except maybe just to give it to Yale, um, which has it been has made it possible for me to, to do. Um, I would, I, I, I'm not in this for the money. I'm in it for the glory. And truthfully, that's it. Um, I, I'm in it because I actually think the constitutional law done well um, will be of genuine service to my country, because I'm, like Stephen Smith, a patriot, um, and, 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 and to the world, because I think the U.S. constitutional project is um, a noble one, and, and so I can't believe every day I get paid just to study this thing that, that I actually love, and because I think, actually, Fourth Amendment case law is screwed up, and there's a better way, you know, that's what I, I get, I'm basically, um, uh, like a little carpenter and I'm, I'm, I'm surveying a deck or something and I'm just looking for the nails that are sticking out. And maybe if I can just, you know, pop them in, there'll be fewer people who stub their toes or something. Or if I can, uh, if I can um, sand out the splinters or something, then th- that, that's going to just be a, a more usable boardwalk, you know, for people to enjoy the ocean. Well, if the Fourth Amendment uh, jurisprudence were redrawn, that would be more than a little nail sticking up, wouldn't it? Um, um. We'll give you a whole well, in the, gra- in the grand case. scheme of things, it's you know, it's one amendment in a very big project. This mm. is the same person who says, "Well, we could think about the national popular vote interstate compact and ways of thinking about the electoral college. We think about filibuster reform. We think of that, think about um, uh, eighteen-year term limits." Mm-hmm. I'm always looking around, seeing 
is there maybe a better way of doing something, you know, better in quotes, you know, uh, what's your um, metric for, for being better, but, but is there something that actually um, history will come to see, your fellow citizens in the moment will, will eventually come to see as an improvement? My claim is, I can, for the Fourth Amendment, I can give you more deterrence at less social cost with a better distribution of costs and benefits than the uh, existing exclusionary system, and to boot, bring Supreme Court case law into closer alignment with what the Constitution really says and means, and those would all be net-net pluses. You know, that listening to you describe that, it's, to me, it sounds to me like a bit of uh, uh, legal entrepreneurship in the sense yes, like... That, Kevin, that's exactly what I am. Kevin Ryan, who was a serial entrepreneur, founded, you know, DoubleClick and a number of other, uh, you know, enormous, uh, uh, MondoDB, you know, another, you know, hu- huge Silicon Valley startups. Um, I heard him talk at a alumni convention. He's a Yale alum. And he said that he just looks for things in daily life that aren't done very well and would like to see them done better. For example, his, uh, one of his kids was getting married and the way that the wedding register was put together didn't make any sense. Why would you only want gifts from one retailer? You know, so that he put a website together that you know amalgamated them, um, and so forth, and this was and this became a business. And you're that's kind of the approach you're taking to, to law. So, um, but again, you're not yes. getting, you're not getting yes, no, the, the no, big that's, bucks. That's, that's, that's not kind of. It's exactly. I see myself. Look, I'm being well compensated by Yale University because, very bluntly, of of generous alums like you and your friends and and the late David Swenson, who could have made a lot more money doing other things, but he was a financial advisor to Yale that helped take alumni contributions and and leverage them uh, with brilliant investments that grew the endowment. So I'm well compensated. I don't, I don't, I don't know what I would do with $3 million. Okay. Um, so, um, um, and it's a pretty easy gig. We haven't talked about teaching yet. We're going to talk about how you um, rank in, in, in teaching. And so it's not just citations, but rankings more generally, how you rank schools, scholars, scholarship, and then maybe eventually books. So, so um, the teaching is not that difficult. It's not that onerous. Uh, so I'm being very well paid, um, and, and, I, and I'm being paid to do more than teach. And one interesting question is, is there a trade-off between teaching and scholarship or a synergy between them? I tend to believe there's a synergy and not a trade-off. We'll talk about that. I tend to think that actually the better scholars net-net, at least in my um, uh, experience as a student, the better teachers were actually the better scholars. The better scholars were actually the better teachers on average. There was a positive correlation, a synergy, not a trade-off. Oh, the more time you spend doing scholarship, the less time you're spending um, uh, teaching or, 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 or training the next generation um, with mentoring. Um, so I'm being well compensated. Thank you, Yale. Thank you, Andy Lipka. Thank you, um, alums. Um, I'm... Uh, 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 the teaching doesn't take up all of my time, and it's not supposed to. So I'm being, um, I'm allowed, I'm an entrepreneur, and no one tells me what to do in general. So I have to be an entrepreneur. I have to look out and say, given my scholarly areas of interest and expertise, given my comparative advantage, how can I actually contribute? You know, what can I do with the time that's given to me and the resources to actually, you know, fix this or improve that? I don't see myself as a theoretical physicist. 
um, uh, I actually see myself much more as an engineer. Um, and um, um, seeing problems and coming up with apps, you know, to, to fix those problems, as it were. Um, and, and, and I need to be theoretical enough to actually conceptualize the problem. But I'm, yes, I'm, I'm looking for problems that I could solve. That would be, and, and, and not just intellectual puzzles, which a critic might say, you're just living in your own head and you're just trying to make the Fourth Amendment's words coherent or something. I'm trying to make the Fourth Amendment's words coherent, yes, I'm trying to solve a theoretical problem, but because I believe that the people who generated those words were not nitwits, but actually um, 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 the Fourth Amendment was crowdsourced, it may reflect the deep wisdom of many people that went into um, crafting and then ratifying that text, that I'm um, making a mistake if I lightly dismiss that. I want to figure out why it says what it does and how it fits together. So in the course of solving an intellectual puzzle, out of the words of the Fourth Amendment fit together, I might discover what at least people at an earlier time, a lot of them, and smart people, thought about a certain issue. And maybe it's actually better than how judges are doing it today. So I, I'm looking for problems to solve not truly that many theoretical problems for their own sake, because I'm a little bit more practical-minded than that. That's why I wanted to be in a law school rather than a philosophy department. Um, 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 but yes, I'm, a, I'm trying to be a kind of entrepreneur, engineer, problem solver. That's my place in the legal ecosystem, which is different than a judge. A judge has to decide all sorts of cases that come before them. It's a different project. You're, you're on a nine-member court if you're a justice. So so what we're talking about today, and maybe for a couple more episodes after this, um, is you know different niches within a legal ecosystem. How do judges interact with scholars, interact with students, interact with lawyers, interact with um, t- citizenry today, um, and more generally the uh, American people um, of, of prior generations who, who generated certain constitutional texts. So in that in that uh, sense, you know, we're ta- you're talking here about um, you know your role in the system. The citations, which we started the session talking about, and we'll continue to discuss um, in subsequent sessions, um, are kind of the output. You know, the input is your you know your your actual work, and then the output is are the are the citations in a sense. Uh, it's one it's metric, a, um, yeah. and I care. I pay attention to. Not just overall citation. I pay intense attention, Andy, to what ten people think. You're one of those ten, and you're one of those ten in part because you're not actually, you know, in my little con uh, 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 con law scholar um, world. Because I, I I care about what a really smart person who cares a lot about this country and, and this world, you know, thinks. Does this make sense? sense to you? Does it make common sense? Because if it doesn't, well, it might still be the right constitutional answer from a certain point of view, but it's really relevant if you push back really hard and say, actually, I don't feel it. I don't get it. So I care a lot. I, I want citations. It's true. But I especially care about what 10 people, what Vic Amar thinks, what Steve Calabresi thinks, what um, um, Jack Balkin thinks, what Larry Tribe thinks, what Walter Dellinger thinks, what what you know, um, uh, Reva Siegel thinks. What what Andy Lipka thinks. Um, um, maybe there are more than ten, of course. But 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 a few people whose work I very much respect. Well, what do they think about the work that I'm trying to produce? 
what do, what do my role models say? What is Gordon? We, we spent a week last week with, with hanging out with Gordon Wood um, and Sandy Levinson and Stephen Smith. And, and, and you're smiling because you know that I care a lot, even though I disagree with my role model, Gordon Wood, pretty emphatically. I care a lot about, um, and, he, and what he said is, oh, Akhil and I disagree. He didn't say, Akhil's, you know, crazy for thinking this. He, he, yeah. And that's what scholars do. They don't always agree, um, but they, they, they um, take seriously what each other has done. And I care a lot, not just about total citations, but what a few people think. Um, and it's not a total coincidence that Gordon Wood is himself much cited, much read. There are all sorts of metrics by which I think um, um, uh, it would be easily justified to say he is the preeminent, not just active, but you know, living American scholar uh, of of, uh, of American history, and especially of the founding period. And also, if you're doing this work and you're pounding these nails and no one is paying any attention, then perhaps you should, you know, shift your approach a little bit or look at other problems. And the citations can be feedback to you as well as feedback to, to others and how much attention they should pay to you, but also whether you're pursuing the right the right yeah. course. What's um, your comparative advantage? Um, now, Ted, Ted, um, um, so, so we're talking about sports. Michael Jordan really liked baseball, playing baseball. Um, um, but too he much. couldn't... He, he couldn't hit a major league curve. And so his comparative advantage actually was as a basketball player and not as a baseball player. So given that, um, Michael Jordan taking this uh, mid-career switch and so forth, you know, one might ask, um, you know, what nails are you pounding in when you're writing the words that made us? Seems like a different, uh, you know, a little bit different medium. Uh, it's a big book rather than a medium-sized article to not a journal. Of course, you've written other books, but it's not strictly a constitutional law book, as probably your other books largely have been. Um, so where does that fit into your oeuvre, shall we say? What nail are you pounding there? So um, uh, um, we've been talking about citations um, now um, of scholars um, and we've talked a little bit about different kinds of works, articles versus books versus treatises. Now we're focusing more on the individual items. Um, so I said I'm cited a lot, but here's actually one article that's cited, Fourth Amendment First Principles. That was an article written in a law review for a narrowly legal audience, largely um, lawyers um, and scholar, legal scholars and uh, judges and justices. Um, now, I believe, so what, so what does the Fourth Amendment say? The right of the people to be secure in their person's house, papers, and facts. And I say, oh, well, I've seen that word before. It's in the preamble. Um, and it's in Article um, 1, the people elect Congress every two years. And it's in five of the first ten amendments, the right of the people to petition and assemble in the First Amendment, the right of the people to be, um, uh, uh, to, um, uh, 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 to keep and bear arms in the Second Amendment, right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment, and the Ninth and Tenth Amendments also use the word people. Five times in the Bill of Rights, once very prominently in the first, the opening three words of the Constitution in the preamble, and then in the next, very next section of the Constitution, very prominently at the beginning of Article One. Okay, so the people is important. 
I think the Constitution came from the people. The people actually ordained and established it. They voted on it. They get to decide, you know, whether to amend it or, or not. Even if you're focused on judges, what you and I have talked about is judges are picked by presidents and presidents are picked by voters, by the people. So given that that's my substantive view of constitutional law, that it's about we the people, not the judges. I'm an originalist. I want to know what the people agreed to when they adopted the Constitution, what they had in mind, what they ratified, when they drafted and carefully wrote um, and ratified the Fourth Amendment, for example. That's what I'm interested in, what the people over time have actually said and done. Because I think there's wisdom there, uh, because I'm a small-D Democrat, and I think they're smarter than the judges, in fact. And Wayne LaFave is taking too seriously what the judges say, and the judges actually aren't as smart as ordinary people, who, by the way, don't often love the exclusionary rule. They don't like the idea of, of uh, uh, guilty people um, uh, getting um, off um, uh, scot-free and, and grinning um, at the victim's family on their way out, um, um, uh, free to pray again. Um, and some of these people are serial predators. Um, so um, if I'm interested in what we, the people, actually did and said and why, if that's my substantive view as a constitutional scholar, it would be weird. I came to think mid-career um, that I'm just writing law review articles for law professors and judges and justices, even if I'm actually doing pretty well. They're getting cited a lot. I stopped writing articles basically in 2000. Um, so for the last 20 years, um, I haven't written articles. I've written just a few um, maybe that were invited or solicited for special occasions. Um, I generated in my first, um, I started teaching in 85, 1985. So my first 15 years, I generated probably 30 articles or so that were um, big and then 60 that were smaller or medium sized or something, about 100 pieces in all. So I was just banging out articles. Um, and I told you about one of the more successful ones, Fourth Amendment First Principles. Um, so article after article after article for lawyers and law professors um, and, um, uh, and judges and justices. And then in 2000, uh, 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 I became a father, um, published this important piece in the Harvard Law Review. It's called the Forward to the Harvard Law Review. It's the, the, the ACME, the summit, um, uh, uh, the, 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 um, the plus ultra of um, legal scholarship, to be invited by the Harvard Law Review to write this um, a, a big keynote um, uh, article that launches um, the entire um, year's output. It's called Forward to Harvard. So I said, okay, done. Can't do any better than that. Let me try to do something different. Let me switch gears. Let me try to write. Um, uh, I had written a book on the Bill of Rights, and, and I enjoyed writing that. But, ah, I want to write books for a broader audience. And that's not a detour from my um, uh, scholarly mission. It's not um, a Michael Jordan going into baseball. Because if um, uh, um, my project is a popular, is about popular constitutionalism, we the people constitutionalism, I should be writing for my fellow citizens. I should be writing for the people. Um, and they're not going to read the Harvard Law Review in general. Andy Lipka might, but he's an unusual um, uh, non-lawyer. Um, but most people, so I've written all these articles is there a larger story here? Could I take an article and boil it down, a 50-page article, into a three-page discussion of the Fourth Amendment that I could 
um, integrate into a three-page discussion of the Electoral College and a three-page discussion of um, judicial tenure, including the possibility of, of, of term of something, and a three-page discussion of, of Senate rules and procedures, the filibuster. Can I take these um, detailed article projects that involve um, a, a very um, a careful, um, elaborate um, uh, footnote scholarship? Can I pull the camera back, pull these pieces together into um, um, a broader um, uh, work for a general audience that would be scholarly, yes, um, um, but more popularly accessible, um, with a little less legal jargon, you know, um, um, fewer footnotes, or maybe footnotes that just say, you know, for more on this, see Fourth Amendment First Principles, 1994 Harvard Law Review. So take my 50 pages and distill it into um, uh, three pages, five pages. And Andy, that was basically my project, uh, has been since 2000, my first really big book with a trade press, a random house, was 2005. And the most recent basic books, um, that was a book called uh, America's Constitution, biography, and the most recent book in that series is uh, from another trade publisher, Basic Books, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, which we've talked about in many uh, previous podcasts. But what else am I now doing in addition to trying to write these books? Do this weekly podcast with you. Um, um, teach um, these books in an ever-scholar program that, that you initiated, these uh, so for, in which I can interact with ophthalmologists and um, and dentists and and um, and and carpenters and 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 uh, and everyone in between, just smart people, not who aren't all law professors, but might be interested in this constitutional project. So that's the career turn that I made away from articles toward books, toward doing a little bit more television stuff. So um, um, this podcast. I think every scholar is, um, which is for, for um, um, fellow citizens. Um, that's all part of this idea that um, um, my scholarly agenda is a popular constitutional agenda. And that's not true for every great legal scholar. If you're a tax law scholar, I'm not sure tax law is actually written for ordinary people. It, so maybe you just write great pieces for fellow tax uh, professionals, for um, uh, uh, t tax advisors, lawyers on the private side for for the IR for IRS lawyers on, on the government side. If you're an antitrust or a, a patent law expert, hmm, I'm not sure you can just write book after book after book for general audience. Maybe, but maybe not because maybe those are more technical law fields. Um, offline, I was just telling you. Oh, if you're a great theoretical physicist, um, uh, you're Albert Einstein. You come up with a new way of thinking of the universe. It's a special theory of relativity. That's maybe a five-page article. It's not a book. It's a five-page article that only a few people will understand at first. And maybe there's going to be someone else who popularizes that. It's not necessarily the case that the person who comes up with the great intellectual contribution is the best at making it accessible. Maybe so. Maybe Steve Hawking, Stephen Hawking was a great theoretical physicist and a great popularizer. I don't know enough about that to, 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 to weigh in. Um, but in con law, at least, I thought 
uh, this is a field where there's, I have some expertise, but I think it's possible to maybe use that expertise in a way that would be generally accessible. That's the project, at least. And I, well, I think that that's, that's clear in, in America's Constitution biography, America's unwritten Constitution, and so forth. <laughs> this book, The Words That Made Us, um, goes more into history, even beyond constitutional history, really, although you could argue that all history is relevant to the Constitution. I think that's mm-hmm. actually an important part of the thesis of the book, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the book is successful, I believe it is, as a, as a, as a reader, um, it actually is, in a sense, more audacious because it, it attempts to, you know, one could see where the con- just writing about constitutional law in the book form, you can still make a contribution to constitutional law, um, you don't have to write it in the form of an article, but here, you know, you're 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 moving more into the realm of history, uh, and and integrating it with constitutional law over a broad period, for both a popular audience, and yet, you are still taking on, uh, you know, sort of established dogma or would be dogma, and there actually are. I would say advances, innovations, and so forth in this book, um, so that it does manage to break new ground, even as it extends its its sphere. So that's a challenge, um, which you know I, I I believe you've met. It's up to our uh, our audience and you, and the readers to read it and see what they think. Um, and we're going to talk more, Andy, in uh, because this is a sort of series of conversations we have about books in general, and they're. Um, we haven't f- finished talking about legal citations, but a whole right. bunch of things more to say about um, citation studies and rankings of scholars, scholarship, and schools. Um, but then the book world is its own special world. Um, and again, there are metrics. How many copies do you sell? And does it matter if it's in the first year or in the 15th year? Because it actually does. Um, um, uh, our libraries, even if you don't sell books, are people you could sell a lot of books and people don't read it. Um, and um, people might read it even though you're not selling lots of books if it's stocked in libraries and it's regularly checked out and, um, and, 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 and read. Um, so all sorts of interesting metrics um, for um, uh, books, which is its own um, world. But yes, you're right. I'm trying to write a book that both um, is accessible to a general reader and is making um, cutting edge, um, uh, new, original, creative, um, uh, um, academic arguments. And that I'm trying to do both in, you know, one piece of work. So it's, it's a bit of a challenge. So in our next episode, as, as we, as you just alluded to, we're going to discuss some more aspects of, uh, citation and recognition and so forth. Um, I would challenge our audience in the interim, to think about this question, um, you know, what beyond just a simple, how many times was it cited, um, might you consider relevant? In other words, you know, we, we discussed, okay, who's citing the citation and so forth. But there are other things, other sabermetric categories within citation that I think are relevant. And perhaps our audience might uh, consider this and, and, you can make contributions on the website. We have the place where you can leave comments, and we'll take a look at those, and we'll include them in our in our list if we 
believe they're relevant. So you might do that. I'd just like to, to wrap up with um, a, uh, a discussion of what we just did the last week. Um, you mentioned that uh, Ever Scholar, the Ever Scholar course, the first American founding took place. And I, I thought it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, here we are with um, Professor Moore teaching his, his new book for the first time. Gordon Wood, greatest living historian, period, who, by the way, also has a new book that's going to be out in September, um, teaching in part that, but also in deep conversation with Professor Marr um, on things that they actually disagree with. I mean, Professor Marr took on, with respect, of course, but took on many of Gordon Wood's fundamental themes. I mean, that's, <laughs> talk about audacity <laughs> or, uh, you know, we could, we could have, yeah, chutzpah, there you go. Um, <laughs> but there they are. And of course, the great Stephen Smith um, giving us this incredibly eloquent perspectives on uh, the thinking of centuries on some of these matters and adding particular perspective, particularly on Aristotle um, uh, in, in, in a variety of ways. And then Sandy Levinson, who's always provocative, uh, taking some of these questions into the present day and showing us the, their relevance and how they're still, you know, our food for thought. And then Millette Geifman, who Stephen Smith described as the next Vincent Scully, any, any uh, Yale alum will know just how, how high praise that is, showing us how even in the, in the architecture of the founding and the time after the founding, we can see some of these, these great principles. So all of that, and then we took it on the road, took a tour of the, uh, the Battle of Brooklyn, took a tour of Colonial Manhattan, went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, went to the New York Historical Society. I mean, and all this day, all day, eating our meals together and having these discussions flow throughout the day. This was with, um, you know, uh, about, uh, we were a community of about 19 um, during the week. How would you describe the experience, Akil? I think you just did. Um, and uh, everything you said is true. Uh, and maybe the only thing you didn't say, two things. One, none of this would have been possible without Andy Lipka. You're, you know, just like this podcast and the website would not have been po possible without Andy Lipka. So, so you're the architect of all of that. Um, maybe you haven't yet written your book yet, um, but you're an entrepreneur and you've created um, this website and this podcast um, and the Ever Scholar program. And, and you're the executive producer and author and director and, um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, 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 lead, lead actor the, 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 um, um, in, in the program, the best actor. Um, and um, I do think it was uh, genuinely energizing for um, the, the students, the Ever Scholars, um, but I think it was also just a heck of a lot of fun for the academics as well, um, interacting with each other and uh, interacting with the, the, the senior students, the Ever Scholars. Um, so, um, uh, and um, the only, and, 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 and I feel guilty, I'm not too guilty, I'm not excessively guilty, but I feel guilty that I, I'm getting paid for this. I'm not feeling so guilty that I won't cash the check. When it, when it arrives, but, but, but thank you. This is how I feel about my gig at Yale. My, my God, you know, they, they pay me to do this and this is what I want to do anyway. Um, and I don't want $3 million. I, you know, um, that's not, I, I'm not, but, but um, um, it, it, it was magical. It was great. 
and and you're and you're going to do it again and again and again. And our audience should actually check out uh, future Everscholar programs. Yes, Everscholar.org. And the reason that we you might you might say why are they plugging this? You know, well, you should understand Everscholar is a nonprofit, and you know it's a labor of love, partly because. We want to do these programs. We love doing them, so they right. need to exist. And, 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 and honestly, I, I said I got paid, and I did. I'm not complaining at all, but, but truthfully, um, I could have gotten paid more doing something else for that week, um, easily, um, consulting or, or something else. So, um, and, and Andy doesn't make a dime off of this. Andy pays you know, um, in time and, and out of his own pocket um, to, to create this, this thing. It is a labor of love. That's exactly what it is, because you're like me. You're an engineer, entrepreneur, trying to figure out, you know, just like that fellow you described, how could you make something like a wedding registry that should exist but doesn't, okay? This program should exist. There's a need, you know, a deep, deep need, and you're figuring out, uh, you know, a way of, of filling it, uh, satisfying it. Yes, and it's it's not a soundbite. It's not, it's different, as you say, which is why we have to spend a little time talking about it, because you, you know, if you just say it, what, what we do, then people think, oh, it's like educational travel, or it's like, uh, you know, a, uh, an online lecture, you know, or something like that. But it really is qualitatively different. We do a lot of reading, we spend a lot, and we put a lot of effort in, but that effort is required in order to get the rewards that we get. It really is uh, an experience that's hard to duplicate in life, to, to, be together with a lot of people that want to get smarter, that want to learn, and there you are with the very, very best faculty, um, and you have a lot of these in-between moments that, are, you know, yes, we're in class, but we're also, you know, walking from pl- one place to another or having our meals or, you know, whatever, and these discussions take place spontaneously, and when they do, there's Gordon Wood to talk to about it. I mean, where are you going to get that? Where are you going to get that in your life? You're not. And, and so, you know, that's why we, we want to talk because it's a hard uh, concept to communicate just how special it is. And this is a great vehicle for doing that. So thank you for uh, a few minutes on that. And next week we'll be back with more about citation and books and rankings and, you know, faculty and all kinds of the sort of, uh, the hidden world of, uh, of academia. Great. Can't wait. Thanks. Enjoy the mess game. Thank you.